0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Weapons of mass destruction and the global spread of infectious disease are two global threats that my guest today has worked to address throughout her career. Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins served from 2009 to 2017 as the U.S. Department of State Coordinator for Threat Reduction Programs, where, among many activities, she coordinated the department's efforts related to securing all vulnerable nuclear material. She also worked on the global health security agenda to reduce infectious disease threats and has served in a number of public and private sector roles, including service in both the U.S. Air Force Reserve and U.S. Naval Reserve. Bonnie Jenkins is now a Joint Visiting Fellow with Brookings and the University of Pennsylvania Perry World House. Stay tuned during the interview for a new installment of Wessel's Economic Update, featuring David's take on inflation. You can get the latest show information by following the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. And now, on with the interview. Bonnie, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria.
1: Thank you very much, Fred.
0: You're pretty new here at Brookings, and so I'd like to open with some getting-to-know-you kind of questions. Your CV is quite fascinating. Let's start with, where are you from originally?
1: Thank you. I'm actually from Bronx, New York, so I'm a New York City girl.
0: Okay, awesome. So, I remember when I was a high school student and going into college, I had a lot of ideas and influences that kind of guided me in what I had wanted to do, which was work in the field of Soviet and Russian studies and diplomacy. And now here I am hosting a podcast, which is awesome. What was your career idea when you were going into college?
1: When I entered college, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to have a liberal arts education. I wanted to have a general understanding and education in a lot of different areas and how to approach different areas and to be able to be flexible to deal with different things, which is why I a liberal arts education. But I didn't really have a focused idea of exactly what I wanted to do. And so that's why when I graduated, I took two years off to kind of find exactly what I wanted to do with my career.
0: Then how did you come around to the idea of a career in arms control and the kinds of things that you started getting involved in?
1: Actually, that found me. I was fortunate to do an internship at the Pentagon after I graduated and received my master's in public administration and my law degree. And I did an internship called a presidential management internship, which is now called a presidential management fellowship. And during that time, I did a rotation at the Department of Defense in their legal advisor's office, and I worked in international law. And during the time I was there, I was working with a lawyer who was actually doing work on a number of treaties, including the START Treaty, Strategic Armed Reduction Treaty. So that was my very first exposure to arms control, disarmament, nonproliferation issues. And once I was exposed to that, I decided that that's something I wanted to do because I found it extremely fascinating.
0: One of the things that's in your CV, I didn't mention it in the intro, but you served as counsel to the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, which is known as the 9-11 Commission. How did you get involved in that?
1: That was quite a few years later. While well, I was at the University of Virginia pursuing my Ph.D., I also worked with a number of people there, and some of the folks were involved with the 9-11 Commission and asked if I would be involved in that.
0: So you served for eight years in the Obama administration mm-hmm. in the State Department. Is there one anecdote you can share from that time, something particularly memorable, a trip, a meeting, a policy outcome?
1: There were several. There were a lot of really interesting things that happened in the eight years that I was there. But probably the most memorable would be the nuclear security summits. There were actually four of them that occurred in the eight-year period. They occurred in 2010, 2012, 2014, and 2016. And those were always really excellent events where leaders from around the world, about 55 or so, got together here in Washington. And also we had a summit in The Hague and also in Korea. And it was an opportunity to focus on issues of securing vulnerable nuclear material. And so just being at those summits, preparing for the summits, but actually being at the summits and watching the leaders all work together and have a conversation around the table on the important issue of securing vulnerable nuclear material.
0: Well, that's a great segue into the next segment of our conversation, which is about weapons of mass destruction. What exactly is unsecured nuclear material? That sounds really frightening.
1: Well, unsecured nuclear material refers to highly enriched uranium and plutonium, the two materials that need to be used for developing a nuclear weapon. And the idea is that if those are secure, if you secure all vulnerable nuclear material around the world, you're able to reduce the chances of non-state actors with the intent to do harm to somehow find a way to get their hands on that material. So it was a global effort, really, to really focus on how to ensure that we secure that material and also that we do other things related to securing material, not just securing material at the site or facility, but also securing borders and educating individuals about the importance of securing nuclear material and a host of other activities that are all dedicated toward trying to prevent nuclear terrorism.
0: So we know that the United States and Russia and Great Britain and seven or eight or nine countries have declared nuclear weapons arsenals, Mm -hmm. and so obviously they have this nuclear material. But then I guess there are a lot of countries that have nuclear materials and don't necessarily have nuclear weapons programs. Is that the case?
1: Right. And there's also, I mean, the the idea is that, you know, even if a country doesn't necessarily have nuclear material on its territory, they have to be concerned about it because of globalization and the fact that people can move around and things are a lot easier now in terms of, you know, travel and everything. And we've seen that non-state actors with intent to do harm do want to get their hands on these materials. We have to ensure that everyone is aware of it and everyone works on it and that everyone cares about it. And so there are many things that are part of the effort that states can be a part of, regardless of whether they actually own any nuclear material on their territory. That includes, you know, joining relevant treaties, implementing those treaties, Ensuring that the borders are secure, as I mentioned before, making sure they have a direct security culture to make sure that people are aware of this issue, making sure that the private entities, private sector entities that have nuclear material, or work with nuclear material, are aware of these issues. So there's a number of things that countries need to do to be involved in this, whether a country actually has nuclear material or not.
0: Do you expect the Trump administration will continue these nuclear security summits in the coming years?
1: I have not heard anything to that effect, that they would continue those. So I can't really say whether they will or not. But I know that during the past eight years, those were very important in terms of what the international community saw as an important issue of nuclear terrorism.
0: Well, now, the answer to this next question may have just been answered, but maybe not. What do you think is the most significant weapons of mass destruction, WMD, threat in the world today?
1: that 's a very hard one to answer, and I always think about that because there 's a lot of unique things that are happening, for example, in the chemical weapons area you 're actually seeing actual use of chemical weapons, which is a very important issue that we need to figure out how to deal with the use that has happened like in, Syria. Uh, in Syria in the bio area also very important, we have new challenges of biotechnology trying to figure out how do we deal with new technology that 's an issue, how do we deal with security issues on those, and also concerns about the biological weapons convention and what will happen in the future of that convention in light of some concerns about finances and their being able to host meetings. And then in the nuclear area, there's always a desire for the non-nuclear weapon states to have a treaty on disarmament. And as you know, there was one that was agreed to at the UN very recently, about a couple of years ago. Unfortunately, none of the nuclear weapon states were part of that discussion or negotiation.
0: Was that the U.N. Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons? Yes. I do want to talk about that in a few minutes. And you wrote a piece about this uh, for our Order from Chaos blog on the Brookings website. On biological weapons, you mentioned the Biological Weapons Convention. Now, I'm familiar with nuclear arms treaties like the START Treaty and the New START Treaty because I studied that in college. It was a long time ago. What is the Biological Weapons Convention? Mm -hmm.
1: Biological weapons Convention is really a convention like the other ones on nuclear and chemical, very much a disarmament convention to try to ensure that states do not develop biological weapons, and if they had biological weapons, to not to keep biological weapons. So it's basically a disarmament convention.
0: Let's turn to this piece that you wrote for the site that I just mentioned. It's about the UN Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And you have a really interesting take on one major aspect of the treaty, and that has to do with the inclusion of women and civil society in the formulation of the treaty, but more generally in the international security process. What is important about thinking about women and civil society in these kinds of things that we think of, you know, this is like a government to government, State Department to the ministry or whatever on the other side?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing about that treaty when I read it is one of the first times that I can recall seeing a reference directly to entities outside government like not like civil society or women for example and also I talk about the importance of education these are all referenced in the preamble of the treaty which I thought was very unique so while I think it's very important to look at that treaty to see what the possibilities are for you know discussions and with countries that have nuclear weapons to see if there are ways that we can move toward disarmament I also think it's important to look at the fact that this is a new way of actually approaching these treaties by looking at the importance of having as many voices as possible in these discussions and in the implementation of this work. As I mentioned, we haven't really seen that before, and I thought that was a very unique take in the treaty and, of course, not one that I think most people will pay heed to because, one, it's in the preamble, and also because it's not the focus of the treaty, which is about disarmament. But I wanted to raise that because I think it's important to have all voices there, including women who have played a role in negotiations in the past, and the fact that women, I think, have a lot to bring to the table in terms of, you know, just different perspectives and ways to look at these issues. The same with having the non-governmental sector, which has played a long historical role in nuclear non-proliferation issues. I mean, also in the treaty that was just negotiated. So I think it's important to highlight that role and and also highlighting the importance of education and making sure that we have a a citizenry in America that is a lot more educated on these issues.
0: You wrote about the principle of an educated global citizenry in the piece. So what kinds of actions could citizens in the United States and in other countries around the world take with respect to global arms reductions treaties?
1: I think take more of an interest in that and realize that these are issues that do impact everyone. I think a lot of times when you look at some of these international security issues, there's very often there's a step taken back from that because many people see these as just very big issues that they really don't feel like they can have an impact on. But I really believe that, you know, it should be taught in school. These issues should be taught in school. There should be much more of an interest in what's going on in these very what they call hard security areas where you're talking about weapons of mass destruction. Because if we have more people who are educated, then we can have more of our impact, I believe, when decisions have to be made about whether we ratify treaties, how we implement treaties, when there's questions of budgeting and whether we're going to fund treaty implementation bodies. Because we can't do those things unless they get funding and the right attention. And it's very difficult to wait until something comes up and then we worry about whether senators are hearing from their constituents on these issues which they may not be following at all. So we should be educating people and have that part of what's being done in terms of not just young people but also older people as well.
0: I think that the issue of treaty ratification is really salient in our country, in our government system, is the U.S. Senate ratifies treaties, meaning they vote on it, meaning citizens can actually – Influence their elected representatives, their senators, on which way to vote.
1: Right. And I think that's very important. We saw that with the recent START Treaty in 2010, where there was a lot of effort really emanating from Washington, D.C., from a lot of non governmental sector entities but really an effort to push out the information outside of the beltway into the rest of America through you know reaching out to college campuses you know encouraging people to write their senators about the treaty and supporting ratification doing speeches and going around the US and writing op-ed pieces these are things that are very helpful in terms of raising the consciousness of people around the US on issues that they may not be following on a regular basis and it's good that we were able to do that at the time we needed it but you know, being able to keep that going on a regular basis would be very good, I think.
0: Let's take a quick break here for another installment of Wessel's Economic Update. Here's David on the issue of inflation.
2: I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. For most of the last quarter of the 20th century, the problem with inflation was there was too much of it. But for most of the past decade, the problem has been the opposite, too little inflation. Despite keeping interest rates extraordinarily low and printing lots of money, the Fed can't seem to get inflation up to its 2% target. The Fed's favorite inflation measure shows prices of all sorts have risen by only 1.4% over the past year. Now, a few months ago, inflation seemed to be creeping up as the employment rate fell and the economy finally recovered from the Great Recession. That's pretty much what economic models predicted. But the past few months have been different. The inflation rate has been falling, a surprise and a worry for the Federal Reserve. Now, you might wonder, why worry? Why would the Fed want prices to rise faster? So first, remember that every price you pay is someone else's income. So the Fed isn't talking about just getting prices at the supermarket up. They want prices and wages to rise more rapidly throughout the economy. Second, too little inflation poses problems for an economy. One big problem is this. When little inflation is expected, interest rates set by the markets tend to be very low. And when interest rates are very low, the Fed has little room to cut them when a recession hits. After all, you can only hit zero or go a little bit below. So the Fed and other central banks around the world figure that a 2% inflation is low enough so it doesn't screw up the economy, but it gives them a little maneuvering room if they want to cut rates. Now, the Fed has confronted a problem. Inflation has been persistently below its target, yet they are raising interest rates and talking about raising them further. Why? Well, many but not all Fed officials figure that the last few months are an aberration, Reflection of some price cutting among cell phone providers one month, something else the next month. With unemployment at a 16-year low, they basically believe inflation is around the corner and they need to act preemptively. But that may not be what's going on. One possibility is that the economy isn't as close to full employment as the experts say. There's more slack, as economists put it. There are enough people on the sidelines of the economy now looking for work that employers still don't have to give across-the-board raises. Another possibility is that the economy has changed in some big way. More competition from Amazon, weaker unions, the impact of globalization, or something. That makes it harder to raise prices and wages. Interestingly, this is a global phenomenon. The European Central Bank has been frustrated that inflation there has been so stubbornly low. Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB, says inflation is not where we want it to be, nor where it should be. And the Bank of Japan? They've done everything anybody can think of, and they've managed to get prices to climb at less than half a percentage point a year. And recently they said they don't expect to meet their 2% target until 2020.
0: You can listen to more segments from Muscle's Economic Update on our SoundCloud channel. And now, back to the interview. Let's turn our attention to global health security. As I said in the introduction, you worked on the global health security agenda. What is global health security?
1: Global health security, particularly related to the agenda, is an area that the U.S. began to focus a lot more attention in 2014. The U.S. has been doing a lot of work in areas of infectious disease, whether naturally occurring or accidental. But also, we do a lot of work in terms of biosecurity and ensuring that we keep biopathogens away from individuals with intent to develop a biological weapon. And so we recognized for a number of reasons, including the fact that we were seeing more diseases happen on a regular basis. We were concerned about the fact that there's something called antimicrobial resistance, which is the fact that a lot of antibiotics being used is actually causing it much more difficult for us to be giving antibiotics and uh, to work in, in the long run. And also, the increase in costs we saw with the anthrax letters, it was very expensive to deal with that. And the fact that... We were recognizing that many countries in the world were not able to can say that they could respond adequately to infectious disease, pandemic or epidemic. And so all of these really converged in a desire in the U.S. in 2013, around 2013, to see what we can do to be a part of strengthening the ability of countries around the world to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease. And so we worked very closely with the World Health Organization, the Food and Agricultural Organization, and also the World Organization on Animal Health. These are all international organizations that work in areas of animal health and human health and food security, food safety issues, and worked with them to develop this agenda, which now has over 55 countries all working together to try to prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease like Ebola and Zika. And the interesting thing is this was launched before Ebola. So this was launched in February 2014. In March 2014, that's when Ebola was identified. And so the fact that Ebola happened really help countries realize why well, we need to do something on a much more strategic level to ensure countries are better able to prevent attack and respond to infectious disease.
0: I think that it's a fascinating combination of public sector in terms of government and public sector health and then even the private sector mm-hmm. having to coordinate and come together to address these emerging threats, these cross-border threats, these cross-continental you know, continental threats. I mean, how do you think the world is doing in terms of its ability to respond to these
1: Very well so far, and of course there's a lot more to do, but I I believe the global health security agenda has really set a stage for how we can work in a long-term manner on a strategic way to deal with these issues to really strengthen capacity for countries around the world. We've done a lot of outreach to the uh, non-governmental sector, as I mentioned before. That's something that I was doing a lot during my time at the State Department. We worked with the foundations. We worked with think tanks, academic institutions and universities, private sector. We worked with uh, young people, next generation, to try to bring them all into this discussion of ways in which we need to all work together to address infectious disease particularly since so much of the work is being done outside government, not just government, but private sector has a huge role in issues related to infectious disease, the kind of products that they provide around the world, to laboratories and others in terms of infectious disease work. Foundations do great work in terms of what they fund around the world, academic institutions with their research, with the work that they get funded to do on the ground, and it goes on and on. And so we looked at it from the very beginning as a a multi-sector multi-society effort, a multi-sector in the fact that all of the entities within the U.S. government were working together on it and continue to work together on it, whether it's Department of Defense, Department of State, USAID, Health and Human Services, Center for Disease Control, FBI. We had all of these U.S. government agencies working together. In addition, we work with other countries when we talk with them about GHSA, Global Health Security Agenda. We say that you also need to have all of your entities involved so we want their, you know, their agriculture equivalent of our USDA, Department of Agriculture, working on it because they also have to have a multi-sector response to deal with this.
0: So a similar question as what I asked earlier, do you expect that the work of this health security alliance will continue in the Trump administration?
1: My understanding is that it will. Uh, My understanding is that we are still committed to it, that Secretary Price made that clear at the recent WHO meeting, World Health Organization meeting in Geneva, I think it was two months ago, where he noted that we are still committed to global health security agenda. Of course, we hope that the funding We'll follow that statement and that we'll be able to continue to fund the work that's being done around the world because we were able to really send out a number of experts from Center for Disease Control and give money to U.S. Agency for International Development and others to actually do the work because it's one thing to say all this in terms of what we want to do, but you actually have to be out on, in the field and actually on the ground working with countries to strengthen their capacity so that, you know, they can be ready for the next Ebola And easy
0: By the time this episode of the podcast airs, you will have chaired here at Brookings a discussion called the One Health Climate Change and Biodiversity Interface to Prevent, Detect, and Respond to Infectious Disease. So there's a lot going on there, climate change, biodiversity, infectious disease. Can you talk about what this discussion is all about?
1: It's going to be a small discussion to look at ways in which different entities can work together to look at infectious disease, but also look at other factors that impact disease. As you can imagine, it's sometimes very difficult to, we talk about multi-sector, it's one thing to talk about the different you know areas of government, but there's other things to talk about in terms of other things that affect disease that are real, in the real world. For example, climate change very much affects infectious disease. Biodiversity issues affect a disease. And so this is going to be an effort to talk about how we can work with international organizations that have already recognized some of these interactions and how we can try to strengthen that effort.
0: To follow up then on climate change, a lot of people just think climate change is about the warming planet and the Antarctic ice shelf breaks off. How does climate change have an effect on the spread of infectious disease?
1: Because diseases are very much connected to weather. And if you look at Zika, for example, it's very much tied to the warm weather and so, you know, obviously a big part of it is about the weather that's going on and, and heat and things like that. So that obviously affects the type of organisms that are around, the type of, in the case of Zika, is the type of bugs around that can be carrying these kind of diseases. Um, so that's one way in which, in which climate change can affect disease. So, you know, these are things that have to be looked at in terms of how they interact, but also how do we deal with that? You know, and how do we, if we're going to talk about prevent, detect, and respond, we have to think about how these other factors are also going to impact our ability to successfully implement some of the goals of GHSA.
0: I almost hesitate, but I won't, to ask this next question because I asked it before. I know it has many possible responses. What do you think is the top global health threat, or at least from what you know, what is one of the top emerging global health threats that you know that people in the know are, are looking out for, are trying to prepare for?
1: Well, I'm not a health expert, but I would say that it's probably the concern about antimicrobial resistance. That's a very big issue. That it's a global concern. A number of international organizations that deal with health, whether it's the World Health Organization or the Food and Agriculture Organization or the World Organization of Animal Health, very concerned about this issue. It's seen as an issue that we haven't yet figured out how we're we going to deal with the fact that, you know, on the one hand, we often give antibiotics for all kinds of diseases. We have to think about. How often we do that? What are the negative impacts of doing that in terms of building up resistance to these antibiotics? So that you know, basic diseases, you know, you may not be able to use antibiotics anymore to, that would work. It's a strong concern. It was a very basic concern for why we decided in the U.S. to initiate the global health security agenda, and many countries around the world are taking a leading effort, a leading role in this. And it's also one of the things that's a big part of the global health security agenda.
0: Let's look ahead. First of all, what is the fellowship that you're here on? Is the Brookings University of Pennsylvania Perry World House? Can you talk briefly about what that is and then talk about what you expect to be working on, either in that capacity or otherwise, in the next few years?
1: Well, this is a brand new joint fellowship that was just recently started. The Perry World House was just opened up last year, and so it's still developing. Bruce Jones was very fortunate here from booking to work with the Prairie World House.
0: The VP and Director of Foreign Policy Studies here. Yes, thank
1: you. (laughs) To be more formal, he reached out. And so they've developed this. There are three of us. I'm not sure if there was anyone before us who were part of this inaugural effort. And so it really means being in Philadelphia about two times a week which is really great because I like traveling up there and then being here for the rest of the week in Washington, D.C. at the Brookings Institution office. And as far as what I'll be doing, I'll probably be working on a lot of things I've been talking about. I'll continue to work on weapons and mass destruction issues, questions related to the future, you know, what's the status of a number of the treaties that we have today in terms of some of the challenges I talked about. Some of the challenges already like biotechnology and how are we are going to deal with that with the Biological Weapons Convention, the use of chemical weapons that are actually taking place, how are we going to deal with that, some of the issues related to nuclear disarmament and a disarmament treaty. Um, So I'll be looking at some of those issues, but also looking at infectious disease, and I'm very intrigued with some of these multisexual issues and how do we work together with different experts to try to address the issues related to infectious disease, and also continuing the work that I did in working with other entities, not just with government, but outside government, um, to try to address infectious disease threats.
0: I look forward to following your work, and I thank you, Bonnie, for sharing your time and expertise today.
1: Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: You can learn more about Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins on our website, brookings.edu. Hey, listeners. Want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Sam Dart, China Holmes, and Brian Harrington. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. And listen to it in all the usual places visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.